Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, it's one of the most compelling elements of story. When a character who seems too far gone, who seems so hopelessly broken, begins to change their ways, begins to experience a renewal, begins to become somebody new. I think of Sidney Carton in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. I think of Edmund in C.S. Lewis' Narnia series. It's such a common and beautiful theme throughout so many of our most beloved stories. And yet, how often do we actually see this in real life? If this is something that we taps into this deep longing that we all experience to see people change, to see people made whole, made new, then why don't we expect it in our world? Why aren't we looking for it? And why don't we see the extent to which we have been made new in our lives? Today, we're going to see the story of a man that is so completely and thoroughly changed that it would not only change his life, but it would change the entire world. Throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit of God has been expanding the borders of who the people that are a part of the people of God and the people looking on can expect to be a part of God's in-breaking kingdom. The good news of Jesus has reached the outcasts of this culture, the poor, the marginalized, the lame, the oppressed. In Acts 2, Peter preaches the first sermon at Pentecost, telling many who have come to see the spectacle of all these people laughing and carrying on, supposing they must be drunk. Peter tells them that it was you. It was you who crucified Jesus, who nailed him to the cross. And as the people hear this message, they are cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do in response to this news? And Peter simply tells them, repent and be baptized. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've seen people change their ways. We've seen people respond to the word of God. But here in Acts chapter 9, where we find ourselves today, we have an even greater reversal, a more surprising repentance, and a pivotal moment in the history of the world. These next two chapters that we're going to be looking at in, the book, in our series on the book of Acts that we're calling cathedrals are really two of the most pivotal moments in the history of our story as a people. And we're going to see this unfold today. First, we have Saul coming to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that he's been waiting for. And next week, we'll see in Acts 10 that Peter sees that this good news, this news about what Jesus has done is available not just for the blood children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, but for the Gentiles, and thus the entire world, fulfilling the vision of Acts, that the people, the church, that Jesus breathes out at Pentecost would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So let's look at this incredible story in Acts chapter 9. You see, Acts 9 is not the first time that we've met Saul. Saul was looking on in approval as Stephen was stoned to death, as Stephen bore witness to the life of Jesus, to what Jesus has done and gave his life for it. Luke is a master storyteller. And he has introduced Saul ever so subtly. He put him at the scene of Stephen's death. And he has piqued our expectations, foreshadowing what we would expect to come is this clash, this conflict between Saul and the people of God. It's that old storytelling trope that if there's a gun in the first scene of a play, it has to go off by the end of the play. And Saul as we're going to see, has ever the look of a loaded gun directly pointed at the people of God. Let's look at the text today as we dive into this incredible story. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Nothing we have seen here in our short introduction is surprising. Saul, again, he watched Stephen be stoned to death, and he seemed to approve of everything that was going on there. He's a kind of vigilante for the faith that he upholds, the Jewish faith. And it's important for us to understand Saul's motivations here. We have to ask ourselves, what would drive Saul to do the things that he did, to go to the extent that he went? Saul's motivations tell us so much about the story that Saul is, thinks he is living as a part of. And so we want to look at the first, what are his motivations? Why would he respond the way he did? First, Saul just doesn't see the Christians, these, this emerging Jesus movement, these people claiming that Jesus is the Jew, Jewish Messiah. He doesn't see them as just another religious option. The Roman society of Paul's day was actually quite a pluralistic religious environment. There were tons of religious expressions. There were tons of deities. There were tons of these, these things called mystery cults that were just simply kind of localized expressions. There were cults de devoted to local deities. There were cults devoted to certain occupations. The, the Roman religious marketplace was rife with options. So why would Saul be so fired up that he would take this drastic action in response to just another religious option. Well, because the Christians were not claiming to be just another religious option. They were claiming to tell the true story of the whole world. And what's more, they were claiming that Jesus came as a fulfillment of the promises that were given, given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David. They, they, they were claiming that Jesus was the one, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And the Pharisees, to which Paul was a part of, and he'll talk about this in later letters in places like Galatians and Philippians, Paul will reflect on his life as a Pharisee ever briefly. But the Pharisees, perhaps contrary to what you've been taught, were not just legalists. They didn't wake up one day and decide, you know what would make a great religious experience. Let's just get really fired up about the rules and let's be really, really in the details, in the weeds, in the minutia. 
And oftentimes when people talk about the Pharisees in the Bible, specifically as it pertains to how Jesus related to the Pharisees, people use this contrast. They say the Pharisees were all about religion and Jesus was all about grace. That's a great paradigm if you're in the 16th century and you're Martin Luther and you need those catchphrases. But the Pharisees were asking different questions. The Pharisees looked at the state of the nation of Israel, to which they were part of in the first century. They looked at the, what was going on in the landscape of the people at the time. First of all, they're under Roman rule. They've been oppressed by a pagan nation who dominates them, who taxes the, the daylights out of them, who does whatever they want to remind the Jewish people that they are subservient, that they are nothing, that they are small. The temple, though it's been rebuilt, is sort of a, a facade, a mockery. It's run by people who are self-serving, who are, who are trying to just make themselves rich, who have made handshake deals with the Roman Empire. They're looking at the state of their nation. The people are poor, they're overtaxed, and they're saying, what happened to us? We were promised God's blessing. We were promised that God would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So what went wrong? Even though we live back in the land that God gave to us, it is not ours. We're, we're sort of tenant farmers on the land as it's owned by the Romans. So they're asking themselves, what is the story that explains everything that's going on? What has happened we were supposed to be the chosen people with a land that has been given to us by God that, that houses proper worship to the one and true God. And Paul, Saul, Pharisee that he was, would have looked to the scriptures to explain what was going on. And places like Deuteronomy 29 and chapter 30 would, would be an explaining story, would provide the context for where the Jewish people in the first century found themselves. Now, I'm going to read an extended bit of scripture because it's so helpful for us to understand how was Paul framing the world? And then what, what did this motivate Paul to do in response to that? So we're going to look in Deuteronomy chapter 29. They and indeed all the nations will wonder, why has the Lord done this? Why has he caused this great display of anger? And they will conclude, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord. They turned and served other gods, worshiping them, gods whom they had not known. And so for Saul, this is the explaining story. What's gone wrong? The people have turned and served other gods. Now, again, Saul is a good Pharisee, would look to the scriptures. How do we fix it? Well, the answer comes in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says, if you return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have compassion on you. And so for Saul, this is the fulcrum on which everything turns. It's clear from him as he surveys the landscape, him and the rest of the Pharisees, that something has gone horribly wrong. Even though the people are back in the physical geographic land, that God has given to them, they're still under Roman rule. They're not flourishing. They're not succeeding. They're not prospering. So Saul says, what do we need to do about it? We need to turn our hearts back to God. So the Pharisees are interpreting their own cultural moment through the light of the scriptures. They determined that the state of Israel was in was because of Israel's sins. And they were in exile, even though they were physically back in the land. 
And this is Saul's perspective on the Christians themselves. We're going to get to this in just a moment. But this brings us to the second part of Saul's motivations. The part that moved him from seeing things, from surveying, from theory to action. Now, I don't know about you, but I see people just about every day that I think represent They take on the name of Jesus and they use it and they weaponize it in ways that I don't think reflect Jesus' heart, his character, his story in any conceivable way. And frankly, it makes me really mad. Sometimes I interject. Sometimes I say that's not the way of Jesus. But I got to be honest. I've never been tempted to have another person using the name of Jesus in ways that I did not think were appropriate. I've never been tempted to have them arrested, much less killed. And this is what Saul is doing, right? He's gotten letters from the high priest saying, I want to have these people arrested. I want to have them tried for blasphemy. Perhaps what happened to Stephen will happen to others. And Saul zealous as he is for for the Jewish faith would know that right there in the Ten Commandments, one of the most important and seemingly easy commandments to follow would be thou shalt not kill. So why does Saul think it's okay for him to disregard the commandment in this instance, the commandment not to kill, and, and to pursue the people claiming the name of Jesus in this way? How does he overcome this tension? For Saul, everything was based on the scriptures. Again, Saul's life, as he will become this great instrument for for proclaiming the name of Jesus, Saul's life is so steeped in the scriptures, it forms his imagination in every single way. Saul would have looked to the stories of old. He would have looked to the stories of Phinehas and Numbers, Elijah in 1 Kings, faithful believers who had stood against the tide of pagan idolatry through confrontation and often through violence. Phineas speared one of his countrymen who was breaking the prohibition against intermarrying with pagan nations. Elijah stood one man against 450 prophets of Baal as God proved that he was the one true God. And then he had all of those prophets killed by the sword. And Saul, from his vantage point, is simply an inheritor of this tradition of sacred, sanctioned violence, what the Jewish people referred to as holy zeal. You see, Saul thought that if the people of Israel would simply return to right and proper worship, that they would begin to see God restore them. If they would repent, God would keep his promises to the people and he would fully renew them. He would bring them out of exile and bring them to a renewed sense of the covenant that he had made to them. Jesus, from Saul's perspective, was nothing more than a failed and cursed Messiah. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And again, Saul, who will later become Paul, will reflect upon that in Galatians as he writes his first letter. And Jesus, his violent death, would have in some way confirmed Saul's suspicions about Jesus. You see, people often suppose that the way a person was treated or what happened to them was a manifestation of their life with God. This is so much of the fulcrum of the book of Job. Job's friends come to him and they say, all this bad stuff has happened to you. Surely you did something wrong. And Job keeps protesting. He says, no, I didn't do anything wrong. 
And so Jesus, from Saul's perspective, was a blasphemer, was somebody who claimed a relatedness to God and even an authority in light of God's name that wasn't his to claim. And for Saul's perspective, the cross was a proper end to Jesus's blasphemy. Now, it would seem here as we land back in Acts that the stage is set for a conflict. Saul breathing his murderous threats and the followers of the way of Jesus all colliding together. But as Saul rides towards Damascus, something quite different and unexpected happens. Let's go on in the text. Acts 9 verse 3. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Instead of Saul binding Christians... It is Saul who is incapacitated by the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. Saul is knocked to the ground and he hears a voice. Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is so beautiful on the part of Jesus. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? No, Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Ecclesia, Jesus so thoroughly identifies with us that to persecute his people is to persecute Jesus himself. We are united to Jesus, our king and our head. And Saul asks him in response, he says, who are you? I wonder if he already knew, but he hears this response. I am Jesus It echoes the response as Moses asks God in the wilderness back in Exodus, whom shall I say has sent me? And God says to him, I am that I am. Jesus now takes this I am upon his resurrected lips and says to Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Immediately Saul goes from being set against Jesus and his followers to being completely dependent upon his voice. And Jesus' voice commands us in the next thing that we are to do. And he says it to Saul. He says, get up, go into the city, and then you will be shown what you are to do. Saul's understanding of the story that he thought that he was living is so radical that he is blind. He cannot eat for three days. Everything has changed for Saul. Meanwhile, as Saul is undergoing this radical transformation, Luke tells of another transformation that is beginning. At the same time, one that is happening in the very church that Saul was seeking to persecute. Let's look in Acts 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than we saw in Acts chapter 5, naturally. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And at this moment, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Just as Saul is receiving the instructions to get up and to go into the city, Ananias receives a word from the Lord to go and to meet Saul and to help him regain his sight. But look at Ananias' response, and it's quite understandable. Verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Ananias' response is basically like, uh, Jesus, do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know what he came here to do? He came here to arrest people like me. He looks on in approval as people are stoned to death. I don't really want to get anywhere near this guy. But God simply moves the conversation from Saul's past to his destiny. Look in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went, and he entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Ecclesia, I don't know about you, but I was so convicted as I read this story. And, and I don't know if you're like me, I wonder how many of us have lost this sense of expectation, this sense of wonder that God might and does meet the least likely people, the people that seem so far removed from God's love, his purposes, his goodness. He meets them with his grace. He breaks through their blindness. He unveils himself to them. And I don't know about you, but I want to recover that sense of expectation that a life truly can be changed in a moment. Pope Francis says Jesus came to save us from the lie that people can't change. And here we see Saul, a radical change, happening right in the midst of a moment. The same breath that Jesus is calling Saul, he is calling Ananias, he's calling the church to go to places that might seem unlikely. Jesus says to Ananias, get up and go. And Ananias' first response is, I'm not so sure about that. God pursues people. He breaks into their blindness, but he won't do it without his church. Jesus is so identified with his body as Saul, this man who becomes Paul, will later reflect that he won't do these things. He won't pursue these people. He won't complete his mission without us. He invites us as co-heirs, as ambassadors, as people called in his name to live out his story in the world. And I wonder how many of us today need to recover or find it for the first time, the expectation and the wonder that God might be doing something so incredible, so unbelievable that we can only give God the glory for it. 
Friends, if you're hearing my voice today, and you're thinking that either through ignorance or ignoring God throughout your life, that you've perhaps like Saul, maybe, maybe at least from a human vantage point, have gone too far, that you've done too much that God could never reach you. I want you to look at Saul. He is literally on an expedition of violence, blinded by zeal. He wants to persecute the church that Jesus calls his very body, his very self. He wants to have them arrested and killed. But more than looking at Saul, I want you to look at Jesus. Not just see Saul and his brokenness. Look at the Jesus who doesn't feel the need to call out his sin, but simply calls out his name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The revelation of Jesus' love, the revelation of Jesus' glory is enough to bring us to our knees, to convict us. And it can reach Saul on the road to Damascus. And if it can reach Saul there, it can reach you where you are now. If you're hearing my voice through all the wise of our networked world. Jesus never stops pursuing people. He went to the cross to pursue the entire world. He said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. This is who Jesus is. This is his unveiling of the God who made each and every one of us. If you think you're too far gone, there is no place that Jesus' love cannot reach. And it is exemplified as Jesus unveils himself in the life of Saul, somebody who was so, so thoroughly opposed to the purposes of God and the world. And yet God can take his life and turn him into an instrument of grace that will literally remake the world. Second, and for many of us, this will be our story. Maybe we are like Ananias today. Maybe the Spirit of God is saying, go to that person, pray for that person who may seem like the least likely candidate to receive God's grace. And Ecclesia, this story is an invitation to recover the wonder, to recover the expectation and to join God in his mission to pursue others. And it won't always follow the same sequence that we see here. Obviously, it'd be nice, maybe, I think, if God would break through everybody's you know, current state, this, the way that they see God, if he would knock them down on their knees and blind them and say, say their names and call them out. I don't know why he doesn't do that. But that's not what we see playing out across every story. But what our call is, in light of our call as partners with Jesus in his mission to pursue people, is to go is to bear witness, is to be with people, even if they haven't been blinded by God. The, the scriptures talk about that those who, are, who don't know themselves in light of God's love are blind. They're following the light of their own torches. And we are called to go and to bear witness in those spaces that there is a better way. There is a more beautiful and full life available to each person. Ecclesia, I believe, that whatever world is emerging from the midst of this pandemic, as people perhaps like Saul have felt incapacitated, have felt stuck, have felt unable to see a future, as people have felt this gnawing sense there must be something more, I believe that we are going to see stories like this of God meeting the least likely people 
in the midst of their own sense of feeling broken or stuck with his grace of unveiling his love to them and in them. And I think the question for so many of us is first, for those of us who are followers of the way of Jesus, is will we meet them? Will we meet them? Will we walk alongside them at the sacred pace of God's grace? Jesus walked with God so that he could run with everything that he had to the world to pursue people. And we are called to be apprentices to this Jesus, to walk with God and to run with everything that we have to the world. Even though it might seem dangerous, even though it might seem counterintuitive, this is the beautiful grace of God. Saul begins this story and he's named as a murderous persecutor of the church. But that is not the last word about Saul. No, Jesus speaks a fresh word as he calls out Saul's name. Saul, Saul. And Ananias speaks a fresh word as he approaches Saul and calls him brother. It's Ananias that's entrusted with the news about Saul's destiny. And we as the church are stewards of people's true names. We are to call out to them in the midst of their wayward living and say, there is a better way. There is a God who made you, who gave himself for you. And we are stewards of destinies, calling people that seem far away, calling people that seem the least likely sister and brother. Will we join Jesus in his pursuit of every person? Will we live into that great hope that we all harbor, that truly people can change because of God's spirit, regenerating, bringing newness and life and flourishing? He is the God who pursues every person. He is pursuing you today. Friends, if he's calling your name, if you're listening to my voice and he's saying to you, this is for you. You don't have to keep going on the same way that you were going. Receive my love, even if it knocks you down, even if it blinds you, even if you walk with a limp. God's beauty, his goodness is calling out to you, is calling your name. And church, let us never be a people who buy into the lie that people can't change. Whether it be somebody in college, in undergraduate, in a time that's pivotal and shaping to their life, or whether it be somebody in their 80s, somebody who's so sedimented and ingrained in their ways, Jesus' grace moves mountains and it breaks through and he's calling us to partner with him in this incredible venture. Let us call people that may seem the least likely sister and brother. Brother Saul, the Lord sent me to you. This is Ananias' words. And he has sent us to a hungry and aching world. Let us join him in his pursuit of every single person. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.